Hi everyone and welcome to the Perma Podcast. I'm James Prescott, your host. It's really great to be with you all today. And I've got a, uh, a great guest with me today, um, my friend Mike McCarg, otherwise known as Science Mike. Uh, welcome back. Oh man, it's great to be here again. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's great to have you back. Um, Mike's been on a couple of times and um, I was lucky enough to meet him in London last year, um, promoting the paperback of his book, um, Finding God in the Waves, which if you haven't read it yet, go and pick it up. It's a great book. Um, yeah, and we talked then and we said he said he'd come back and here we are. So, um, yeah, welcome back. Um, awesome, man. It's it's like twenty degrees over where he is, and it's it's February, and it's really really cold <laughs> here in London. So <laughs> he's making me jealous of how of how warm it is over there in the, in the winter. <laughs> well, it's uh, Los Angeles, so winter's not really a thing. Um, it's like pretty much consistent weather, like ten months out of the year, and then it gets kind of hot in the fall. Yeah. Um, but it's always you know dry and nice and pleasant and sunny. So, uh, yeah, the rent is the downside of that arrangement. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure, yeah. Yeah, you get what you pay for. <laughs> right. Um, yeah, no, that's a place I'd love to go. Um, so, yeah, um, so what have you been kind of, what have you been up to in the last few months? What have you been, what have you been doing? Been uh, getting the season four of the Liturgist podcast ready to go. We've added two new hosts for this uh, go around. Um, you know, the Liturgist kind of started out of the friendship between me and my friend Michael Gunger, and we've always wanted to add more voices uh, as hosts on the program. It's been really hard to get people to agree to uh, mm. commit to being hosts of the program because it's incredibly time consuming. But this season, finally, we we got to add. Hilary McBride, who is a, a psychotherapist and PhD candidate and researcher, uh, and William Matthews, who's an incredibly talented artist and activist, as hosts on the Liturgist podcast. So, been working really hard on that. I'm hard at work on my next book. Um, you know, which uh, is probably still too early to go into detail about, but there is another book from me coming. And acclimating to Los Angeles, we moved here this summer. Um, and it, you know, it took a little while to get all the boxes unpacked, mm, and then I started it. traveling again, uh, doing Ask Science Mike Live, which is uh, my other podcast, and um, you know, the, the normal stuff, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> normal stuff, yeah, that's pretty cool stuff. Um, so we've got our Science Mike here, but he does a. In case you don't know who Science Mike is, he does a podcast. Um, Mike isn't actually a scientist, as it were, but he just knows loads and loads and loads of stuff. Um, and people send in their questions, and he asks them. He answered them, and uh, he tends. I to try to anyway. He tries to, yeah. Um, he tends to know what he's talking about, and uh, yeah, I, I went to an Ask Science Mike live in London, and it was just I saw this saw this live. It's unbelievable. So. It's a good time, um, isn't it? It was awesome. Yeah, some really yeah. good questions. Um, all sorts of questions. So I'm just going to come at you with some questions tonight. Um, the first question I really wanted to ask um, was about... I saw something something you were tweeting about a lot um, a few weeks ago, I think it was, um, about texting and social mm. media addiction mm. um, and mental health. 
Uh, mental health is something that I talk about a lot, and I've been on a few radio shows and podcasts talking about mental health. So I'd love to hear what you've got to say about um, texting, social media, and its links to mental health uh, and what you've learned and how it's impacted you. Yeah, sure. Um, I've, I noticed years ago um, a creeping anxiety in my life that coincided with the arrival of Facebook in my pocket, where um, I was an, I've always been a technology early adapter uh, before I had a iPhone at a smartphone. I had a BlackBerry back in the day, and I mean, oh my god, not a yeah. not a BlackBerry phone. I mean, literally, all it was was this device that did email and nothing else. But you could do email anywhere, which people, a lot of people, didn't even have an email address back then. And here I was, you know, sending emails on the sidewalk. It's like science fiction. Mm. Um, and and what I noticed as these devices got more and more sophisticated, uh, the more and more I would crave the little that little notification that something was happening. And when I would look at that notification, a lot of times it was nothing or a waste of time. Uh, but other times it was because, oh my gosh, a real human being hit liked on something I said on the internet, which is really validating. Mm. Which of course it was. I'm a social primate. Homo sapiens evolved to live in community and to seek the approval of other humans, and we're validated mm. by that. Uh, but the problem with the way smartphones validate the social parts of our brain is they do it in a very shallow way. They do it only using language. Um, mm. and, and we're a multisensory organism. So we're our whole brain craves the stimulation of others, but that's more than just text floating on a screen. People's tone of voice, their body language, their facial expressions, even their smell, even the warmth of their bodies, all these things come into play in creating social interactions. And so smartphones uh, strip all that away and simply create a bizarre uh, feedback loop of validation Hmm. that uh, scratches an itch but never satisfies. It would be like trying to survive uh, by eating nothing but graham crackers. Like, there's nothing wrong with graham crackers, hmm. but they're not nutritionally balanced. They don't satisfy the whole palate, palate, and they certainly don't provide all that the body needs. And so what we're doing is engineering in ourselves uh, a dopamine-based compulsion for hmm. smartphone interaction that ends up making us feel lonelier and more isolated, and more alienated every day. In fact, researchers have identified something called the Instagram effect that comes into play when people uh, look at Instagram. And if people are going out less often, which which um, research tells us they are, especially younger people, um, well, all they do is they get on Instagram and they see all their friends out smiling, having a good time. And on the occasions they go out, they also post pictures of themselves smiling, having a good time with friends. But our brains... Just see, everyone else is out having a good time. I'm not. I'm weird. I'm aberrant. I'm the only one. Mm. And this can create not just depression, but suicidal ideation and suicidal tendencies. So I have a a very serious concern that we've gone too far in on social media and the smartphone and that we 
aren't telling people uh, how to properly integrate these technologies into their lives without having a cost on their mental health. And all this has to have a huge caveat, saying that for some people, uh, people who are, um, say, on the autism spectrum disorder, Hmm. or people who uh, have communication disabilities, for some of them, texting and text-based communication has been a lifeline. So I don't want to oversimplify Hmm. a single prescription for everyone. But I do want to say that we are not being careful enough with this technology or how it is used in our lives. Yeah, and I agree with you. I mean, I'm I'm somebody who is probably a. I've never had a diagnosis, but I would think that I am. I either have PTSD from a childhood trauma, or I'm very I'm very mildly. Um, I'm a high functioning. Asperger's, yeah. So I'm on the on the spectrum, the autistic spectrum, possibly. It's never been diagnosed, but my sister's worked in mental health, and she knows a lot about mental health. And people close to me have said so. So I understand that whole. And I'm an introvert, so texting and social media is has been a lifeline for me. But at the same time, I've realised in the last year just how lonely I am. Mm. And mm. I actually made a deliberate attempt to cut down on how much I was going on social media um, mm. which was actually helped by starting a new job which when I didn't have time to go on social media so right. I had a bit of time at lunch a bit of time after work and that was it it was like it was very regulated and my mental health has improved as a result without a doubt um, I'm less angry less less depressed and less lonely and I'm not comparing myself to other people all the time so what you're saying is absolutely right, you know. Um, I mean, I think our generation had the benefit of growing up in a more analog age, as well. Yes. Um, I think they call people who were born between people who are not Generation X, people who are not Millennials, are called Xennials. I think, um, which is us. So we kind of were after Generation X, but and we were but we were kind of before the Millennials. Before before we remember a time before. <laughs> before you know social media and mobile phones and but we were young enough to be able to adopt them just like you mm. be early mm. adopters you know um and i think I, i'm grateful that i'm part of that generation rather than having grown up with this stuff because some people these because there's kids now who just don't know any different they don't it's not that it's not their fault they just don't know anything different and this is how right. they grew up um and parents maybe who weren't educated or weren't prepared for like the consequences of it all um so yeah um and so what has this impacted you I mean, what has this impacted your own your own use of of you know social media and, and mobile phones and texting and, and and that kind of thing uh, well a couple of years ago uh, i had a motorcycle accident and um injured my brain well. and um that brain injury has changed my relationship with technology. So a lot of uh, the kind of animated interfaces you see on smartphones kind of confuse or overwhelm me. Um, And that constant sort of irritation has led me to a different set of practices with technology. Uh, One is I have disabled all notifications on my smartphone. Mm. 
mm. other than the phone will ring if someone calls me. And that's the only notification my phone gives me. No, that's not true. Also, banking alerts come through because if someone stole my credit card, I want to know. Mm. Yeah. Um, but that's it, right? So my phone, which is here right now, it's not on silent. It's not on airplane mode, but it, it, it is sitting stone still, not interrupting me during this call because I don't have any notifications on. Um, and that has broken that loop of the phone constantly interrupting me and drawing my attention away from whatever I'm doing. And then I also have a pretty strict, uh, pretty strict rules about when I let my phone be near me. Mm-hmm. Um, when my family sits down for dinner, my phone's not allowed to be there. Um, about an hour and a half before bed, my phone goes on my nightstand and it stays there until after I eat breakfast the next morning. And so I create these these boundaries mm. between the device and myself so that I have I have just normal lived time without this constant source of stimulation. Um, and, and when I do use my phone, um, I only use um, I only use Facebook and Twitter and those kind of applications times I have on my calendar during the day. So I don't just go oh. drop in because I'm bored and go on a social media voyage. I check into those things in the same way I check email as a means of communicating with people on a regular basis without it having dominate my life. And that's been incredibly freeing for me. Um, and, and other people who have tried it at my suggestion indicate that it has been very freeing for them as well. Yeah, that sounds a really, really, really healthy thing to do. Um, yeah, it does. I, it's weird because I've noticed a lot of, um, I've noticed a lot of Christian thought leaders um, have kind of. Uh, some of them have actually quit Twitter recently. Um, Sarah Bessie quit Twitter recently, and. Uh, Nishra Seth quit Twitter as well, like, and there's a few others who just like just that's I'm just not not engaging with it anymore because it's 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 just being bad for my health. Um, mm. um, it's getting people de- depressed and down, especially in the current climate where you see you know bad news about um, the occupant of the White House or his government or um, you know acts of violence um, happening and it's just and while we need to be informed at the same time when, you, when it's constantly there all the time it, it can drag you down and um, yeah um, we need to have a healthy balance I think sure. I'd quit Twitter if I hadn't already put it into a little box that it can't get out of um, and I think it's also easier for me as a man to be on Twitter especially in kind of a Christian space than it is for a woman because they're so often barraged by a constant stream of people saying, you have no right to speak, you have no authority, you're a woman. Um, mm. So I, I applaud them and support setting up boundaries like that in their lives. And obviously I'm a huge fan of both Sarah and Nish. Yeah. Oh, yeah, me too. Yeah, absolutely. Um, they're great people. Yeah, and I'm, st- I'm lucky I'm still connected with them on um, on Facebook, which is great. So yeah. still get to keep in touch with what they're doing. But... Um, but yeah, I think it's a. I think people are going to have to set healthier boundaries, aren't they? On 
with social media and the use of smartphones going forward because otherwise we're just going to we are going to get we are we're already kind of getting a mental health kind of catastrophe in many ways because there's yes. so many people more people are suffering with mental illness now than ever before yes um, and there's a that, that's got to be one of the one of the biggest reasons um, yeah it could be and loneliness as well loneliness is so under I mean people don't talk about loneliness as much um, but it is a really big issue and lots of people are really lonely yeah um, especially um, in the west yeah our, our culture creates that kind of isolation. You, you don't yeah. actually see the same kind of a loneliness epidemic globally. Yeah. Uh, but you definitely see it in westernized nations. Absolutely. It's our, it's our you know, our focus on hyper-individualism and, and personal sovereignty, which, you know, isn't bad per se, but the fallout looks bad today. Hmm. Yeah. So, oh wow, we could go on forever talking about this, but uh, um, there's some other things I wanted to, to ask you about. Um, your kind of faith journey, your spiritual journey, um, it's very fashionable to talk about deconstruction and reconstruction nowadays. Um, so just tell us a bit about kind of where you are right now in, I don't want to say your faith, I don't want to say your Christian journey, I'd rather just say your spiritual walk, as it were, kind of, how, because you had, you had, what happened to you before, where you kind of lost your faith, and then found it again, so where, where have you come since then, in a sense, and where are you, where are you now, and how's that impacting what you're, what you're doing with your life? Well, I, I think, I'm a contemplative mystic. Um, I my, my spiritual practice is centered around uh, a practice of silence and stillness, wherein I make the space to encounter the divine. Um, it's not a video podcast where I'd show your listeners. You know, I've got like a meditation cushion and a little kneeling bench and. Um, I do. I read the Bible as well. I do identify as a Christian, um, although I'm uh, very much a universalist. Um, hmm. I think there's this freedom in escaping the the manic rhythm of our daily lives, hmm. especially in the West. And um, exploring the landscape of silence with the divine. And discovering what you learn about yourself and about the world. And the way that you can connect with uh, what, what you feel as if you connect with the root of all things. What I've been working through lately is how, what an inward draw that produces. Hmm. So often in the teachers of contemplatives... There is a um, talk of like bliss and suffering and all these things. Mm. And that's great if you have the time to sit cross-legged on the floor for an hour a day. Uh, yeah. But that's not an option for a lot of people. Mm. Indeed. And so where I've been at with my spirituality recently is how are these insights useful to busier people, 
to mothers with small children. Mm. And how do these insights encourage us to transform the world to be a more just and equitable place? So the bulk of my spiritual movement after finishing Finding God in the Waves has been a move towards justice through contemplation and through contemplative action. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think if, if you follow my work, uh, that might be, uh, that would be obvious for people who follow me closely, uh, the degree mm-hmm. to which I'm primarily concerned with what's happening in this world to real people, how real lives are impacted and what we can do about that. But the, the animating energy behind all that is actually my contemplative spirituality. Yeah, and that makes a lot of sense because meditation should lead to action, shouldn't it? Like, you know, it's like the, I, that's the whole thing about the thoughts and prayers thing on social media. Mm. Which it's like, it's not that thoughts and prayers are bad, it's that well, they're not followed up by action. You know, right. when you have the power to act and then you don't act and you just say, oh, I'm praying for you, but, but you don't do anything when you can, it kind of renders those thoughts and prayers a bit empty. Um, right. Um, and that's where that criticism has come in and in the last couple of days we've seen that again um, um, certainly have um, I, saw one, I saw one person um, we're talking by the way two days after the, um, the shootings in Florida in case anyone's not sure about kind of time wise where we're talking um, but um, yeah I, what I was going to say is um, all these Republicans came out again and said thoughts and prayers. You know, there were a whole list of them. And one person, I think, who was a writer for uh, uh, for the Jimmy Kimmel show, replied to every single one of them with the amount that they get paid by the the NRA, which is the um, American Gun Association, I think. National Rifle the, Association. National Rifle Association. Yeah. Sorry, yeah. I'm a Brit. I don't know much. I don't know. Everything. <laughs> but um, we don't have guns over here. Um, Catch yourselves lucky. Yeah, yeah, I know we are very lucky. Um, we are, but um, yeah, she just tweeted the amounts they were getting paid. You know, so basically rendering all their press meaningless because that's what they were. Um, but yeah, meditation has to be followed by action. You know, um, um, yeah, absolutely. That's really interesting, and I have noticed that in you know in your work in recent weeks as well that you've been talking about those kind of things a lot. Um, which is really cool. Um, yeah, and it's not that I just want to abandon people who are working through deconstruction. I, that's still a major animating energy in my work. They are, in their own ways, a marginalized group of people. But yeah. becoming aware of the way that people in doubt and deconstruction and faith transition are marginalized by the church gave me the eyes to see the ways in which so many other people are marginalized by the church and by society at large. Hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, oh my God, there's so many questions I could ask you. Um, so many topics I could ask you about. Um, I think the next kind of natural thing is how we believe against against what we believe. Um, Uh Kind of, because I've been doing a lot of reading of um, Richard Rohr and um, yeah, non-dual spirituality and um, that kind of thing and holding our beliefs loosely with open hands rather than holding them on tightly um, and one thing I've noticed 
um, especially last year, was a lot of people who would call themselves liberal, progressive Christians who are holding their beliefs really tightly. And I've noticed that they sound a lot like conservatives, but just they're just just what they're saying is different. Um, but the tone and the 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 way that they believe is the same, and it's equally damaging. Um, how much has that impacted you? I mean, like in terms of how you believe, thinking about how you believe as opposed to just what you believe. Um, and do you hold your beliefs lightly with open hands? Um, or have you been, or, or have you held them with closed hands, or, or have you done both? I tend to have a very open-handed approach to my beliefs. Uh, <laughs> That's what um, I thought. Yeah. I mean, I'm basically a nihilist. I don't really trust any of my beliefs. Uh, but you can't just operate from a position of nothingness all the time. Um, I have to put some confidence in the fact that when my stomach rumbles, that's a real organ that's telling me something about my body's need for food, or I'll starve to death. Mm. So I start assuming like some of these experiences are real. And when I do so, then I become very focused on human experiences involving suffering and loss. Those become very important things to me, suffering and loss. Mm. And so while I hold my beliefs with an open hand, I will still speak with vehemence and intensity on matters of human suffering, especially when it is the specific actions or inactions of other groups of people that cause mm -hmm. that suffering. Mm. Now, that doesn't mean I'm not open to hearing what viewpoints I may have missed. It doesn't mean I disregard people who disagree with me. But there, it's one thing to hold beliefs loosely. It's another thing to so crave a lack of conflict in the world as to allow great injustice to persist in the world. So I think there's two streams at play in what you say happening with uh, progressive Christians. One is, yes, people lose their old fundamentalism and need a new one. And in those cases... I certainly think that people would be better served by finding a more open-handed posture. On the other hand, it can't be denied that uh, sort of a Western Protestant societal ethic is one of non-confrontation and non-conflict that overwhelmingly favors the status quo and that it is necessary to break that mold for progress to occur. When the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King was alive and doing his work in America, most Americans did not like him and actively disapproved because they said that he was too vehement and too outspoken. Mm. And it's only as time has moved on that we've seen his refusal to acquiesce and his determination to march across a bridge mm. in Selma, Alabama, that led to the ability for African Americans all over our country to gain the right to vote and to be desegregated, to get access to schooling and other social resources. So, as people, it's confusing, especially when both of those things are in the room at one time. 
So I try to be gracious with people on the right and the left Mm. who are clinging to their fundamentalism. And I try to inspire people to look above their fundamentalist outlook towards the universal idea that all people are created equal. Mm. That's beautiful. That's really, that's really, but that's exactly what, that's exactly kind of where I am. You know, because I mean, this week I've got really, really angry about what's happened in mm. um, LA. You know, and I often get I often get attacked for uh, by some people for by some um, Republicans for like who are friends of mine saying you're British. This doesn't make any difference to you. Why are you talking about this? And I'm like, well, I'm a human being. You know, right. if this happened right. in if that happened in this country, if one incident like that happened here. Um, it would be like a national tragedy, you know, and right. media would be talking about it for weeks and the government would, would do something immediately, probably, because that's what happened the last time we had a, an incident like that, about 20 years ago. Something was done straight away, um, you know, and it was a national tragedy. But in America, it happens so often that it's almost become normalised. Um, you know, some. I mean... I'm, you know, in terms of the reporting of it, it just feels like it's just, oh, it's just another one, it's another one, it's another one. You know? Yeah, it just becomes um, normal. Yeah, and it's not. <laughs> it's not. And that's no. why it gets gets me so upset, you know, because it's just like, you know, and children dying is is horrible, you know. Yeah, um, right. It's, it's horrible. Um, yeah. Excellent. Um, okay. I do want to talk about the brain a little bit. Um, okay. As somebody who's got anxiety, um, the last couple of years, I've, I've been unlearning a lot of unhealthy beliefs and unhealthy ways of living and unhealthy um, habits. Um, and I've, been, I've, act, I've actively been re-learning new, 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 new ways of thinking, new responses, new, you know, um, and... Because one thing that I've noticed is that I used to respond to anxiety and depressive moods differently. And then I found out from, I, I think I heard it on a podcast, I don't think it was your podcast, that you, you can choose how to, you can choose in your brain how to respond to those impulses. So I started to try and change how I responded to them and it actually helped me grow. And what I realised I've been mm-hmm. doing is actually retraining my brain to respond differently. So how does that how does that work and how can we all do that? Um, because I think that might be something that could give people a bit of hope who are, who are, who may be struggling with these kind of struggling with anxiety. Like I do struggling with anxiety and, and low moods and depressive moods. Um, um, and need some way to some hope, you know, and, and some way that they can learn to manage those rather than just kind of, because there's no magic cure for them. Um, right. Right. It's it's more about managing how you respond to them. So how does that all work in the brain, and how can we how can we better train ourselves to be healthy? All right. Researcher Jonathan Haidt describes this way um, in his book, The Happiness Hypothesis, that every human being has two uh, battling impulses in their brain, mm-hmm. especially their their lower brain. One is approach, and one is withdraw. You could also call that, I like this, I don't like this. And everybody has a different balance between those two impulses. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. So people who have a, a natural draw towards I like this tend to have a sunny outlook and tend to not have very much anxiety. And people who have a bias towards I don't like this tend to have maybe a darker outlook and a higher tendency to experience anxiety. So I am a I like this person. So my outlook tends to be sunny. I don't tend to experience very much anxiety. When I do experience it, um, I can use a couple of the techniques we're about to talk about with great success. But I want to start by saying, as I talk about three strategies for dealing with anxiety, your balance between approach and withdrawal, or I like this and I don't like this in your brain, Mm. will affect which of these techniques will work and how well, or if you're going to need a combination of all three. So let's start with the most basic form of uh, medically validated anxiety treatment. That's meditation. A regular meditative practice has been shown clinically to have a therapeutic effect on people with anxiety. So if you're a person like me who doesn't really struggle with anxiety except occasionally, or a person whose anxiety problems you know, are, are, are relatively mild, meditation alone may be enough to help you defeat anxiety most of the time. And let's pause to say sometimes anxiety is a normal healthy thing. If you have a big presentation at work tomorrow, you should be anxious. It's fine to have anxiety in that situation. If you're in a new environment with new people and you're not sure if they like you or not, of course you're going to feel anxious. So don't label your anxiety as bad in every circumstance. But that said, meditating six times a week for 25 to 30 minutes a day is one of the most powerful things you can do to combat anxiety because meditation teaches you how to stand back from your own thoughts and feelings and watch them. And for some reason, the ability to watch your anxiety instead of experience it directly helps you realize it's just a part of you. It's just one more signal that your brain produces to tell you about the world. And then you can choose how much attention you're going to pay to your anxiety. So that's number one, that's meditation. The next step up in an intervention standpoint is something called cognitive behavior therapy. James, that sounds like maybe what you've been up to. In cognitive behavior therapy, best practiced at first in conjunction with a licensed therapist or professional, you learn to observe your thoughts. And what you'll find is that most people Well, they say really terrible things about themselves and their thoughts. Mm. We say, I'm no good. I'll never learn this. I'm so stupid. I'm so fat. We use these terrible ways to describe ourselves, which conditions our brain to produce anxiety because it affects our overall outlook on life. So in cognitive behavior therapy, the goal is to learn to watch one's thoughts, to stop them, interrupt them, and correct them. So as soon as you become aware that you're saying, well, I'll never make any friends because I'm an unlikable person, you stop your thought and you say, that's not true. Mm. I am a likable person. And Mm. doing that over time, and I'm way oversimplifying it, I have a giant book on my shelf behind me about cognitive behavioral therapy. That's that's not a 30,000-foot view. That's from the orbit of Pluto view, right? Mm. Um, But... (laughs) That technique 
has helped a lot of people, myself included, deal with not just anxiety, but depression or suicidal tendencies. Mm. So if you're meditating and it's not working, and you've been meditating for six weeks and you've seen absolutely no change, (laughs) by the way, best to journal so you have a better assessment of whether you see change or not. Mm -hmm. Uh, Then try maybe cognitive behavioral therapy. You can buy a book on your own if you want to try it or go see a professional. Now, both of those things don't help you. The third proven medical intervention that's clinically validated is medication, right? So sometimes some people's brains are just so biased towards withdrawal, so biased towards the I don't like this response to stimulus, that really no form of therapeutic intervention is effective. And for those people, a medical solution through some anti-anxiety medication can produce the relief that they need in order to function a healthy and balanced life. Wow, that's great. And you're right, I have had cognitive behavioral therapy. There we um, go. And I've done a bit of meditation as well. And I don't do meditation enough, actually. Meditation is something that I tried um, a while back and tried to get into the rhythm of doing. But I could never quite get myself up in the morning to do it. It's something that I did practice a lot of deep breathing from my stomach rather than my chest. And... Um, did what you talked about, letting the thoughts kind of arise and just kind of releasing them in a sense, kind of list, not not holding on to them, and just letting them pass through in a sense, being detached from them. And that definitely made a difference. When you get more oxygen in your body, I think that, that really helps, actually. Oxygen is a really good thing, obviously, when you're human. Yeah. Um, well, and you don't have to meditate in the morning. If meditating in the morning, it was the problem... Meditate at a different time of day. Yeah. There, there's lots of options. You know, don't get don't get stuck on like one particular time of day, one particular approach, and then give up. You know, feel free to be flexible. Meditation is a is a is a gift. It's not a it's not a military regimen. <laughs> You're right. You don't have You're to right. blow the trumpet and and get you know hit the floor running to meditate. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, okay, so just kind of coming to a close, um, I've got a question, because I know that you, you know, you're kind of on the cusp of everything that's happening, kind of, in terms of science and new stuff, new discoveries, new advances and stuff, um, stuff, I keep saying stuff, um, <laughs> that's not a very scientific word, is it, um, but, um, but, so what I mean, what have you been learning recently? What's been happening recently that you've been learning about in the kind of the science world that has been getting you kind of excited and um, kind of aroused your curiosity? I've been deeper into the brain-body connection than I ever have, and viewing the body as a part, or the brain as a part of the body. Um, I, I have a Western bias, and I tend to elevate the brain as the most important organ and then treat the rest of the body as a suitcase that carries it around. Uh, but in the last year and a half, I've been studying a lot about how the rest of our body and our physicality impacts not just how we feel physically, but our emotions and our emotional balance 
even the way we think, even the things we don't see, we see and don't see in our environment. Um, you know, we've got uh, we've got more neurons in our gut than many animals have in their brains. And in fact, there's a nerve that runs from the brain to the gut called the vagus nerve that if you sever it, uh, the neurons in your gut will continue to operate your stomach and intestines with no interruption and no trouble at all. And this is why, for example, sometimes when you take antidepressants, you get diarrhea because the chemicals that affect the neurons in your brain also affect the neurons in your stomach. So I've been fascinated to learn, you know, the ways in which we've been shaped for our brains to only operate in conjunction with the body. For example, your brain only functions not just because your heart pumps blood to it, but literally there's a nerve connection between your heart and your brain that tells your brain to keep functioning. If you sever that connection, even if your heart continues beating, you'll undergo brain death. Um, So I'm really fascinated with uh, this phenomenon, and I'm trying to learn more about how you know the ratio of microbes in our guts can impact depression, um, or uh, ways we can use body-based experiences to impact our mental health. That is fascinating. That really is fascinating. I look forward to hearing more about that. You know, I mean, mental health is something that I'm really, really interested in, and um, I talk a lot about it, um, not on my own show so much, but certainly on other people's shows, and um, I know there's a lot of people out there who are struggling and with mental health challenges, and the more we learn about how our body and our brain works, the better, you know, um, I think. Um, yeah, wow, that's really interesting. Um, look forward to hearing more of that. So you can catch Mike on Ask Science Mike, uh, the podcast, um, on the Liturgist podcast, and on Twitter as well. Um, um, what <laughs> is it? Twitter and Facebook, pretty active on both. What, what's your handle on uh, Twitter? It's, is it just uh, Ask Mike McCarg? Mike McCarg. There you go. M I M I K E M C H A R G U E. If that sounds like a lot, just remember you can't spell McHarg without argue. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. And uh, and your website's MikeMcHarg.com, is that right? Or is it Ask Science Yeah, that, if it's quicker to type AskScienceMike.com, I'll take you to the same place. Great. Awesome. And do check all of those things out. I listen to them all the time. They are amazing. Um, really inspiring. And check out his book if you haven't already, Finding God in the Waves. Um, every You can buy it anywhere. You can get books basically, so uh, that's right. Check that out. Um, thanks, Mike, for coming on. It's really great to have you on, James. It's great to be back, and uh, I appreciate you and all the work that you do. That means a lot to me, that's really encouraging. Thank you, thank you. Um, right, so okay, everyone, thanks for listening, and uh, hope you have a great week and talk to you soon. <laughs>